This is Gil Manser welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. This afternoon's conversation is with the celebrated editor and publisher, Susan Bono, with their soon-to-be-released collection, What Have We Here? Essays about keeping house and finding home. Susan Bono likes to skip over her earlier careers as a high school English teacher or stay-at-home mom, and instead talks proudly about the hundreds of writers in print and online in her labor of love, Tiny Lights, a journal of personal narrative. In addition, Susan has helped coordinate and host the Writer's Sampler Series for the Sebastopol Center for the Arts, and helped found and co-host the Speakeasy Literary Salon at Petaluma's Aquas Cafe. She has also been a contributing editor for the Pushcart Prizes, and for the second edition of Sheila Bender's Writing Personal Essays, How to Shape Your Life Experiences for the Page. She currently serves on the boards of the Mendocino Coast Writers' Conference and Petaluma Readers' Theater, and edits the Noyo River Review. Her work has appeared in anthologies, magazines, and newspapers, as well as on stage and the radio. Susan Bono, I am pleased to have you back on Word by Word as you launch your new book, What Have We Here? Essays About Keeping House and Finding Home. Thank you, Gil. It's great to be here. Good. Now, I noticed that you've organized your book in some sort of a fashion that makes sense to you and uh, would probably make sense to most readers. But why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a background of where these personal narratives or essays came from? And then what exactly is a personal narrative? Oh, you're asking some really big important questions, aren't you? The idea that that I would, I never thought I would be somebody who would actually put a book together. I was always writing in little bits and pieces. But you know, you after 19 or 20 years, you can s- start pulling things out of your files and realize, well, you've got, I've got something here. And so it was the kind of the question of, well, what, what is it? I mean, in, in a way, what have we here is the question that I asked myself when I sit down to write an essay, but it also was the question I asked when I decided to put this book together. And going through many, many pieces of paper and computer files and odds and ends, the shape became, became uh, you know, clear to me that I was writing about what it was like to be a mother, what it was like to be a homemaker and um, a wife and, you know, a, a daughter of aging parents and things like that. And so uh, that's those are the pieces that stayed in the book. There is a whole other uh, pile of pieces that didn't, that didn't make it between the covers. So personal narrative versus uh, memoir, I guess. Well, you know, those terms are ever shifting and elusive. I don't know if you remember, uh, not that long ago, there was no – we didn't talk about – memoir. When I attended San Francisco State in the 70s and majored in creative writing, I couldn't take a a, non, a creative nonfiction class. There were no such, there were no, weren't even any personal essay classes. Right. So this is a, 
we don't really know what we're calling this. And if you notice, too, you go into the the bookstores and memoirs often filed under biography. Mm-hmm. So we don't we, – we, we're kind of uncomfortable with that. So I tend to think of personal essays as uh, being under the umbrella of memoir, mm-hmm. which – and again, I don't know. I kind of like the term autobiography. Autobiography. But, but that's just not um, in fashion these days – now, one of the differences, of course, in, in the, and you use the term creative nonfiction, um, is that you're allowed a little bit more of fluid uh, moving the facts around, shall we say, or not? You know, well, that's one of those controversial things, you know. I mean, we can say, well, this is the, this is the way I remembered it, and you know. Well, that's always had true. those experiences where, you know, two people will be present and, and remember an incident completely differently. Um, no, I think for me, creative nonfiction was developed as a term, you know, when we, we think about, we now are used to having the reporters, the writer's presence uh, there in, in more formal reporting. But, but back in the day when Tom Wolfe and Joan Didion and, uh, folks like they were kind of breaking barriers, Truman Capote, with in cold blood, that idea that the reporter isn't just this faceless, anonymous conduit for facts, that the writer is also there shaping the narrative, um, even when he or she is trying to be extremely objective. And so I think for me, the idea of creative nonfiction is the sense that that you're telling the story true, you know, being as close to the facts as possible, but you're shaping it in a way that that it's more story-like. It's more um, – it, it has the elements of, of fiction perhaps, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the dramatic arc and themes and things like that. So, right, right. you know. Now, you worked with Jerry Haslam, is that right? Yes. Yes, yes. for a number of years in fact. Well, yeah. I mean it's – I only took one class from oh. him. Back in 1994. Is it that you know, long ago? It was oh that gosh, long ago, yes. yes. And, you know, just, you know, about to turn 40, it was that long ago. And um, so he encouraged me in that. But he was he was a facts – he was like keeping it close to the facts kind of guy, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. He wasn't encouraging me to, you know – imply that I'd been arrested or, you know, you know, you know, the idea of stretching the truth in a way that makes things more. Um, to get you on Oprah ex- and yeah, apologizing, exactly, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, and, and uh, what I tell my students and what I've told myself, too, is that what I've noticed is that, that the way I end up writing about something ends up being the way I actually remember it. Mm-hmm. So if I fudge stuff when I'm writing or when my students do, it's like they, they, they run the risk of then having that be the the historical record. Mm-hmm. And so we want to stay as close to the facts as possible. Right. Yeah. So one of the things, I've read several people who, you know, got, had a chance to see your book in various forms, I guess. Uh, you have it with you now, which I is do. nice to see it in, in paper because I, I saw it, got it online, so I've been reading it that way. And uh, a couple of them referred to you as the new Irma Bombeck, which is, you know, certainly great laurel to have inherited. And there's one uh, thing I'd like you to read, which came across to me as an Irma Bombeck kind of thing. It starts, it's on page 91 called Housebroken. Housebroken. You'd never guess by looking around my house that I once took pride in my housekeeping. 
I can't tell you when my attitude changed exactly. It was a dream that died without a sound, no shriek or snap, not even a whimper. It's not that I don't remember the years of scrubbing fingerprints off wallpaper and polishing chrome, the acrid fumes of ammonia, the squeak of a rag on buffed glass. There were entire decades when I shook out rugs, vacuumed draperies, and attacked the refrigerator on a regular basis. Last week, I opened the refrigerator and noticed a box of rock-hard baking soda behind the jars of gray pickle relish and rancid salad dressing. I left it there as proof of my former devotion. There was a time when I was convinced my family would be happier and healthier with clean sinks and regularly changed sheets. I thought order and harmony could be taught, like reading and multiplication tables. I figured if my mother could mold me into the kind of adult who makes her bed and understands the uses of various cleaning products, I could pass this knowledge along to my own children. It's hard to believe I was that naive. Maybe it's a gender thing. My husband and teenage sons outnumber me three to one. I have no daughter who might revere the family knickknacks or appreciate the allure of flowers and gift wrap. My sons don't notice crumbs on the breadboard or when we're out of napkins. They see nothing wrong with storing empty cardboard boxes in the dining room or leaving piles of clean clothes on their bedroom floors. It's possible to get them to clean something only if I articulate each step in exhausting detail and stand there watching while they fulfill the minimum requirements, not one jot more. My husband, who can sometimes be prodded into action by feminine tears or tantrums, will, once he completes a repair, leave his tools where they fall. I can't remember the last time I was able to find a measuring tape, Phillips head screwdriver, or some household glue, but right next to the bathroom sink is a bottle of chain lube. As time goes by, our house is starting to resemble the exquisitely filthy bachelor digs my husband shared with other like-minded guys before we were married, with bathrooms that only got cleaned by the girlfriends in self-defense. On the occasions I have expressed horror at our domestic disarray, my men regard me with genuine astonishment. Only a fool would fail to see that I am surrounded by superiors in size, strength, and indifference. Now that I've learned to ignore the blobs of dried toothpaste on the counter and the way my feet stick to the kitchen floor, it's easy to pick my way around the shoes and game cartridges and extension cords. It's kind of a relief, really. I don't know what took them so long, but my family has finally trained me. <laughs> That's Susan Bono reading from her book, What Have We Here?, which is a collection of personal essays or uh, mem uh, what yeah, do we I'd call, call them, yeah, them personal, personal essays. essays. Yes. You're comfortable with that. Sure. You sure. can call them anything. Well, except I, I, they are supposed to be true. Well, so, so yeah. you know, you now, could even call them stories. But we were taught in true. school that an essay has to have five parts. Yes, is this still true? You have to have the topic sentence, the opening paragraph, the explanation of what's coming, uh, an outline of what you're covering, a counter argument, and then a summary. Well, you know, that's I think the form of the expository essay, and and even though I loathed and despised structure. 
and and I went but by the time I was in high school we were all into I don't know like we were supposed to be doing our own thing and e Cummings and all the yeah, yeah all that stuff and and we didn't have to study Canterbury Tales we got to you know read science fiction and things like that so so um the idea of the expository essay just t- seemed so intimidating um and I avoided it uh, thinking about it but but I recognized that um, every essay is really an attempt to answer some kind of kind of question, and so there you have to have you have to let your read and you have to let your reader know what it is you're trying to uh, explore. Mm-hmm. So there you go into your your topic sentence or your thesis, and so my rule of thumb is that. If the reader doesn't know what you're trying to discuss within the first three paragraphs, you've probably lost them unless you've got a big surprise, you know, waiting for them at the end, you know, so that that there is that structure. And I think that there's also the sense that um, you've got a question, you begin to explore it. And the great thing about personal essays, you can ask really big questions. I mean, you could ask, you know, is there God? And you don't have to, exp- you don't have to answer the question definitively, but you have to make your best attempt. So I would, you know, I wouldn't encourage people to ask the God question because it, it would take a lot to try to answer that. But smaller questions, um, you know, can I live in a house that's not as as tidy as I would like? Can I learn to do that? That was kind of what that that essay was, you know, attempting to, you know, for me to ask for myself. So um, I think that there's a there there has to be a question, a kind of a problem or conflict, like what does this mean? What am I doing here? How did I get here? And then um, a shift in perspective, some sort of. Um, so, some sort you got to come to some sort of conclusion, mm-hmm. you know, and and hopefully it's a positive one where you've learned something, you understand something, you have a glimmer of a clue, you know. or you say I'm completely clueless. That's right. Sometimes, sometimes I think you know, life. You just have to stand there holding it, looking down on it, and saying, "Well, here I have to, you know, yeah. I have to live with this." That's kind of what uh, I read in some of your bigger. Um, essays on deeper thoughts and, you know, death and the future and et cetera, et cetera. Kind of reach a, well, I don't know yet. Yeah. 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 You start your book in your preface with a really interesting story about your past, and you don't have to read it because it's short enough to talk about, where a friend of yours when you were younger taught you how to draw a house. Can you share that? Oh, well, but that idea of of the the child's version of a house. Yes, that's a that's a, a and I'm thinking now. Can I even remember my, my dyslexic it's a brain? Square, you know, it's a square and a triangle with a triangle roof, on right. top, with um, with a, a door dead center in the middle of the square, and and two windows above that, and uh, a chimney on the on the roof with a with always with with smoke <laughs> rising. Right, always. Right. Yes. So, yeah. I don't know if you know that that's used as a test by some psychotherapists uh, with young children to see if everything is right in the world because that vision of their home reveals quite a bit about them. Oh, interesting. And yet where does that where does that image really come from because I don't know very many houses that look like that. Well, in the cross-cultural studies, you know, in different cultures, like in the Native Americans who are living in, in uh, 
you know, Hogan's and such, they drew the same house when they were oh my about four. Yeah. So there's something mm-hmm. there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Even if we want to add a little extra with a little tulip, you know, on this, or right. a little tree, like a little lollipop tree or something. Yeah. So let it share us about your two basic houses that are in this book. You have the one where you were raised and grew up, and that is in... Tell in me, Woodland. Woodland, yes. California. And that was a house that had lots of different features, at least in the different essays that you've used, that you discovered over time. Do you remember what I'm talking Well, are, are you talking... I mean... Uh, Features meaning how they contained my. Um, no, tell me. They contain tell me your you... history in a sense. Yes. yes. So yes. when you revisit them in your mind, you can go from room to room and remember things. And where were the ghosts? Oh, those the, the ghosts are not in my childhood home. Oh, those yeah. are in my. Um, those are in my current, your current house, home, which is in Petaluma. Which is in Petaluma. It's we've lived in Petaluma. It's our. It's the first house my husband and I bought it's it's we've been you know we were newlyweds living in san francisco we found a house in petaluma and moved in and we 34 years later we're <laughs> we've filled up all the closets now right so um, so it's time to move right well i'm liking to think it's time to get rid of some stuff but well you know the interesting thing is that the kids don't take it You've no. saved it for them, and you've carefully labeled the boxes, right? Oh no! I, if I were, if I had carefully labeled anything, I would feel, you know, yeah, pretty, pretty like good. Box from so and so's room, right? No, yeah. it's not that organized. No. Yeah, but but um, well, and my parents lived in their home. It wasn't actually the home that I was a young child in. They they moved when I was at the end of my high school career, mm-hmm. but just across town, and um. They had all this wonderful storage space, and they filled it all up, and I had to empty it out. Right. And it was – that was an experience. You've and got several essays about yeah, the Yeah, it was, it was really huge for me. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that, that other people who have – many people have moved many times. Maybe you're one of those people. No, no. Know? We've been in um, our house 30 – almost 32 years now. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe you didn't move much as a kid either. No, nope. um, one time. That and so it. that that sense of stability and always having th- things where you left, you know, maybe you don't know exactly where they are, but you know they're there. Um, to have to dismantle that kind of uh, container is was it was big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, yeah, the ghosts are you know the ghosts are in our house, but I have to say that after writing that. I wrote an essay about them, and um, I think the one you're referring to, and they haven't been quite as active after that. So I don't know if, if we reached some sort of agreement. Yeah. Or, you know. Well, I, maybe you writing about them made them uh, be be more wary or or more relaxed. Or more relaxed. Or, yeah, I mean, I think that, again, if we're lucky, we come to terms, We with, uh, an essay is... You, we come to some sort of sense of reconciliation, mm-hmm. you know, and that maybe by acknowledging them that yeah. they, you know. But it's interesting because you use that as a way to go to a, a nearby cemetery and then look at a larger and longer lifespan way mm-hmm. back to, you know, when the Indians lived uh, in that same locale. 
about the man who died in the bathtub, but his ghost is not one of those you see? Uh, no. In fact, I've never – I have um, rarely seen anything much. It's other people reporting uh-huh. that – I mean, I've, I've caught a couple of glimpses of things, but um, it's been more that other people have uh, looked up and seen somebody walking up the front steps who are then – who's not there mm-hmm. two seconds later or things like that, but – so one it's of not the, a scary house, by the way. Anybody who's out there who would come no, to see no, it's no. not a scary house. But one of the things that uh, – what I call your sense of place in the, in the stories about the houses and in the title of your book certainly uh, revolves around that. And there's one thing I'd like you to read. Do you have page 28, the other I side of the fence? So. I hope so. Let's I check and so. see. 28. I do. Okay. I found this fascinating. So, so let our readers know what house we're in when this happens. We're we're in the house that um, my husband and I moved into when we as and young what married. is the approximate date? That would be this would be probably about nineteen eighty seven. Well, when we moved, it we moved in nineteen eighty one, and we were on the western edge of town. Um, our street. We looked behind over our back fence, and there were just fields as right. far as you can see, all the way to the ocean. Yeah, pr- pretty much. There was, you know, a little farmhouse every now and then to, to break rocks. them. Yes, yeah. but you know, there were some older farmhouses on those hills behind us. But we had, you know, goats and and chickens running around in the on in the field behind our house. And um, now there are there's. They're lovely custom homes, but they're as far as you can see. They've been built up, you know, yeah. out ad infinitum. So this starts the transition in this essay. Yes, okay. yes. It is called? Oh, it's called The Other Side of the Fence. From the very start, the pasture beyond our back fence seemed as much a part of our Roosevelt-era charmer as its octagonal dining nook curving archways, creaking floorboards, and unpredictable fuse box. We delighted in the view from our front windows, which look out over the jumbled rooftops of our small northern California town, but the sight from the back bedrooms of that open field provided the healing antidote to too many years of hive dwelling in San Francisco. We noted with satisfaction the violent lushness of its wintered grasses, fading to silvery dryness by summer's end. Roosters began to shriek well before dawn in their ramshackle coops, but they disturbed us far less than the sirens that had broken in on our sleep during the dead hours of the city night. Enterprising moles and gophers connected their domain with ours. Possums and skunks traveled well-worn paths through our yard during their nighttime raids on our neighbors' pet food and garbage cans. We bore these intruders from the other side of the fence no malice. Unlike the city's two-legged marauders, they were not out testing doorknobs or prying at windows. Tenacious weeds of every description migrated over our property line, but the extra yard work was a small price to pay for the pleasure of jackrabbits bounding in the morning mist and silhouettes of grazing cows and goats against the evening sky. We never climbed over our wooden fence to ramble in the dewy grass or investigate the uncapped well and rusting farm machinery. After all, we didn't own the property, only the view. 
It was enough to breathe the spice of blooming mustard through our open windows and hear the footfalls of ponderous grazers as we sat in rickety lawn chairs on our patio. With each passing year, we grew more proprietary. We dreamed of a two-story addition and soaring deck like those of some of our neighbors. There would be ample privacy for afternoon sunning and life in big windowed rooms that took advantage of the scenery. We were confident that the combined obstacles of an inordinately steep slope, overburdened sewer system, and uncertain economy would continue to secure this land for solemn cows, red-winged blackbirds, and flowering weeds. But one morning last spring, the livestock disappeared, and a small tractor began grinding its way up and down the pasture. It was too early in the season for plowing fire breaks. The driver worked doggedly until the entire face of the hill was laid bare. Soon after, survey stakes sprouted in the black earth, their fluorescent orange streamers snapping festively in the wind. Men in hard hats and heavy boots arrived with the boisterous, boisterous joviality of party-goers. We heard their clumsy stamping, taunting calls, and occasional grunts as they readied their equipment for the final assault on what remained of the rabbit warrens and other animal hiding places. We no longer had to set our alarm clock because every morning at seven, the chatter of birds was drowned by shouts, snorting machinery, and beeping backup signals. The kids and I learned to stay inside when afternoon breezes swirled up clouds of dust that settled over the shrubbery and play equipment. Even with the house closed up, the boys could draw pictures with their fingers on the gritty windowsills and floors. The combination of noise and heat in the stuffy house made us all cranky. We began looking for excuses to stay away from home. That's fine. We began looking for excuses to stay away from home. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful line. Oh, well, thank you. And and that's one of those pieces where it doesn't have a happy ending. It's just no. sort of like, oh dear. oh, dear. You know, we have to, That here's progress right in our faces. In quotation marks, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. This is probably a very good time for a, a break. I'm Gil Manser, and this is Word by Word, Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. We continue our conversation with the celebrated writer, teacher, editor, and publisher, Susan Bono, as she shares more of her personal narratives from her new book, What Have We Here? Essays About Keeping House and Finding Home. So we were talking a little bit about how you divided the book up. Do you want to share the, the titles of the um, different sections with me? That oh, are in the yes. Front? Well, it turned out um, that most of my pieces are, very few of them are over 2,000 words. Mm -hmm. I've been a short-form writer, and many of them are under 800. A couple are only half a page. Yes, yes. Um, I kind of wonder if those might be, well, they wouldn't be prose poems, but there's got to be a a term. We've got flash fiction, but we don't have... Flash (laughs) nonfiction. Yeah, that doesn't quite... I'm thinking maybe instant... Flash essay? Instant essay. instant essay is kind of my vote, but then be sure to give me credit for that. I will. I I will say Um, Susan Bono said it here. That's right. That's right. Um, And so it turned out that I was able to divide uh, this into three sections, and I have to say in part, I could have just left them all... They're in roughly chronological order. Mm-hmm. So uh, you start out with me as a, actually a few childhood uh, stories, but as a young married 
person and a young mother and then on through the death of my, my kids growing up, leaving home and, and my parents um, leaving permanently. And so I, I divided it into three sections because that just seemed sort of, I don't know, the idea of doing things in threes always appeals to me. But the first section is starting out, so that idea of making making our homes, but but really from just an assortment of ideas we had about what life was supposed to be like, I think. And um, and then the middle section, holding on, where we've set the machinery of our lives in motion and now we just have to kind of like try to keep up with all of it. And the last section is called letting go. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the idea of, well, what happens after all that homemaking and kid raising is over. Okay. And along this way, in the last 19 years at least of this, you were also doing Tiny Lights. Yes. So, And it followed a similar pattern, it seems to me. Well, I would I would say so. I don't know how how noticeable it would be to the just the casual observer, but I'm not talking to a casual observer. Right. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about where the genesis for that came from, other than the fact that you had some things and other people had some things you wanted to share with the wider world. Well, um, we're flashback nineteen years. Yes, nineteen years. Um, but it goes back to Jerry Haslam because right. when I when I took was taking his personal essay class, he was so encouraging and matter of fact, and it was just the idea that in his life he wrote and then he found places to put his work. And um, but actually, what I discovered in that in that environment was that I had I had taught high school off and on for about eight years before I stayed home with kids. And I enjoyed the the teaching part of it, the, the idea of helping someone, you know, facilitating someone's writing. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to go back into the classroom, the high school classroom. And, and so, you know, how was I going to take that those skills and apply them somewhere. And I didn't I didn't have the imagination to think, well, I could try to, you know, apply for jobs as as an editor someplace. I had no idea. And so but but Jerry had shown us he'd been talking about the small press review. Mm-hmm. And you know, if, I don't even know if people see that I know it's online, but it used to come out as a as a monthly mm-hmm. little uh, newsletter. Little news, yeah, yes, like a little pamphlet. And it was full of all these really interesting small press offerings. And the idea of – and so I knew that there were other people out there doing these small magazines. And I, I don't – who knows how these crackpot ideas get started. But I just thought, well, I Let's can't – put go. on a show. That's right, you know. And, um, and so – I think I just happened to be under the influence of someone who basically said, well, if whatever you want to do, you just you have to just put one foot in front of the other and do it. And and Jerry is very much that way. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he basically, you know, said that he, as a writer, he just kept knocking on doors until someone said yes. And that was his method for getting published. So um, I just decided I would start a magazine. Silly me, right? But it was in those days when we it, we we could I don't know cheaply. I I I wonder now. I mean, certainly we can't. It would be really difficult to do a, a print magazine now. Yeah, but an online magazine. 
But an online magazine, yeah. 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 Even less expensive, you know, with money up front. True. Just as time-consuming, though. Yes, and challenging in a different sort of way as far as how to get the word out mm-hmm. and stuff. I mean, I was I was sticking up. I was putting flyers in, in in the you know at Sonoma State. I'd go to the English department and put flyers in mailboxes right. and and things like that. There was sort of like this hands-on thing that I that I began to miss as as we've gotten more you know internet. Right. Centric. Digital. Digital, right. yes. yes. Yeah, I even hate to say the word. Yeah, when was that? About eight years ago, nine years ago now that you started shifting over? Um, no, I've had a website since about 1998. I was a, I Were had you a, online that I had a, a GeoCities. I remember you sending me something and I said, oh, look, yeah, you can get it this way now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, um, my my I think he was probably about 15, my oldest son, built me a GeoCities website. <laughs> You know, so I've been online for a really long time, but but I also think that there was something that I never quite the print issue of Tiny Lights for people who are familiar with it was is was an is in a newsletter was in a newsletter format, and and I always saw that as a separate thing from what I did online, and which is really not a a, a good way of doing. You know, wasn't a very business like approach. So I've always felt like I had two publications. The, the monthly and quarterly postings that I put on the website and then the the print issue. Mm-hmm. And you were your own publisher, so you were the one shaking you the finger if things weren't happening on the time that you wanted, right? Yes. 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 That must be a difficult boss to have. Well, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, when you say shaking the finger, I think I was more like, you know, sh- pointing the finger at myself and right. making myself feel bad well, and then feeling I mean. like I needed yeah. to apologize to people who didn't really care whether I was, you know, a month late or not. You know, it's that's the thing you you, you realize is that, you know, you can do whatever you want. Nobody's really paying attention. You're not Life, ma- no, Life no. magazine. It didn't have to be in the mail. No, such and such no, there, no. I wasn't there. going to set up an uproar. Right. Yeah. So you have come to a major milestone in your creative life by deciding to what's the word you're using for tiny lights? Well, I'm retiring it, I suppose. Uh, uh, my whole online presence again since about 1997, it's like Susan Bono has appeared on the Tiny Lights website. But but my plan now is for Tiny Lights to appear on the Susan Bono website uh-huh. as an archive. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you were going to expand with this book into other um, outlets and venues? You know, I'm not sure. I, I just I just hate the idea. Tiny Lights is still um, such a precious thing to me mm-hmm. that it would be sort of like, you know, throwing out all my children's photographs or artwork or something, you know, that that I want to keep it. There, there's so many people who have been published there that they can, you know, it's a little billboard in space for them that – um, I'd like to just tuck that away and have it be accessible for anyone who's interested. But mm-hmm. I'm really not sure what I'm going to do next, and I'm I'm excited about that. Well, I wondered as an editor if you'd looked at the uh, you know the pieces that you'd had in Tiny Lights over the year and thought of putting them in clusters of things together. Well, some of the work that I did uh, publish in Tiny Lights, my own work, you mean? Mm-hmm. No, I mean um, others Other as well. people's too. Yeah. Well, On you know, themes, because there are some, yes, some recurring wonderful, yes, themes. Yes, yes. I, have, I have thought about that. 
there's also but there is the question in the same way that when I publish the magazine, it's like, well, um, when I my annual contest issue, mm-hmm. I was able to pay my writers. Right. But when you start putting together anthologies of of work or or these themed things, it's kind of like, well, but then. But I'm using all this wonderful content, and am I going to pay? I'll pay you in copies. Right? Yeah, yeah, or that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's a, that's a difficult, that's a difficult thing. And tracking, um, I've stayed in touch with a lot of of the writers I met through my work with them in Tiny Lights. And in fact, a, a guy over in in Rochester, New York, Greg Gerard, he when he found out I was. Um, retiring Tiny Lights, he said, well, then I'm going to have to start a magazine, and he has. Oh, good. And um, it's called The Big Brick Review, and he's modeled his uh, annual contest. It's, it's a similar contest to the Tiny Lights contest. And so, um, but but again, I mean, over the years, I've stayed in touch with a lot of writers, but but I don't know how many computers have I had. And, you know, we went from <laughs> floppy disks and, th- you know, it's like, to to be able to track everybody down and and get permissions and things like that I'm yeah I'm it's be, a great a idea if yeah. I had a if I had a personal as- assistant okay or and something yeah. anybody out there Susan Bono at what dot com yes <laughs> yes that's right yes I have to go to another part of this what I guess I've called personal revelations now I'm coming at this from the point of view just so you know and and so all the our listeners will know is that I write. Um, I mean, I've written 65 nonfiction books, and I finally started writing what started as memoirs of family stories mm-hmm. that were told to me by my parents. And then uh, creative nonfiction popped up, and they became novels instead, which mm-hmm. allows, you know, that story yes. arc you were talking about, yes. you change the things around. It did not have to happen in that sequence. It yes. makes it much easier to work, and then it works as a book. Um, but I've had many people come to me and say, well, is that true? Aren't the people upset because you're writing about them, et cetera, et cetera. So you have what I call personal revelations by the score yes, in here with yes. about your children, certainly. Yes. I mean, uh, and about your husband, certainly, about you. Mm-hmm. So give me some feedback. How has that been to live with over the years? Are you more comfortable now than you used to be or are you less comfortable you know, I I I think it goes both ways. I think I'm actually less comfortable because as life has gone on, um, I I've realized that the these these they're not necessarily secrets, but these revelations that we share. You know, I say, well, it's my story, but if if I'm writing about my children or my husband, mm-hmm. well, whose story is it mm-hmm. really? And I mean, I think that the the more difficult stories of my life. I I have not found a way to write about them. Mm. You know, that because it's um because other people are involved, not enough people have died right. yet. Right. You know. Well, that's true, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because you if they were gone you could write about those perhaps, things. Perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah. But I mean I but I think that the best personal narrative um are, you know, is when we when we reveal things about ourselves and our own failings, mm. and you know, I think that that sometimes in the past, um, I'm hoping that I've been kind enough, but you know, 
I really admire the people who who the, who themselves are the fall guys, who are the – they're the ones who are the slobs or the – you know, and I'm sort of the one who's pointing the finger and saying, nobody's helping me around the house and you don't understand me. And, <laughs> and you know, that – that comes back to bite you, you know. I mean, you have to. You have, it's it's. You know, I'd rather I'd rather be able to be turning. I'm trying to find ways to really turn the spotlight on myself instead of pointing fingers at other people. Can I ask you to share two uh, essays that are here um, that are quite revealing? One is called Valentine on page thirteen, and one is called Anniversary Waltz on page forty-four. Right. You know why I'm asking? Because they kind of make bookends. Well, they do. If you don't want to share this, um, well, but it's here in the it's here in the book. I mean, so it's it's like and it's it's interesting. Um, After you read these, let's talk about uh, reactions that you may have had originally when they came out, and now that they're in the book. Okay. 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 So I'll read Valentine. Mm He and I roam San Francisco's Lincoln Park golf course one February night under a round, heavy moon. The scent of decaying leaves, mown grass, and damp earth is as intoxicating as his nearness. We race down sloping turf, stand astonished at the sight of a wooden Chinese cemetery gate looming in the middle of the fairway. No more laughters, the ghostliness of the cypress and eucalyptus give way to the palace of the Legion of Honor, a luminous temple of stone whiter than moonlight. Quieter still in the echoing courtyard, our warm hands explore the big toe of Rodin's lonely bronze, then pull away, chilled. We become our own shadows, playing hide-and-seek among the columns. No matter how cleverly I try to conceal myself, my date seems to think as I do. He knows when I'll slip against a wall or make a break for the open. Our game is over quickly, but neither of us is disappointed. The man I will marry can find me anywhere. Uh-huh. So let's go a dozen years later or more. A dozen years later, yes, and I can't remember what okay, page that's Okay, I'll on. give you the page for that. It's uh, 44, called Anniversary All Walks. Right. And it, this is long, so I'm assuming I know we're it is, going but to... we're going to stop in the restaurant. I'll tell you what. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So I won't be like, yes. No. I'll just... Yeah. The Anniversary Waltz. I want to be in love again. It is my most exalted state. When my heart is held captive, my long slump spine lifts straight, my walk goes willowy, I am dazzled by my very breathing. Love sharpens my wits but softens my tongue. I become an expert interpreter of gesture and glance. I can read secrets in my beloved's eyes, gaze the intensity of his desire as he leans close, inhaling my perfume. With love, every moment is a dance whose intricate movements I have somehow anticipated and stepped into with unstudied grace. Lately, I long to hear the music that would accompany a new passion. I'm thinking these thoughts as I walk with my husband in the coastal hills of Marin County. I've been married 11 years today to a man I love, but loving him is not the same as being in love with him. I follow behind as we walk a steep trail through live oak and manzanita. A strong breeze twirls the leaves like green lassos overhead and rushes the dry grass with the pulse of beating blood. 
We are alone under the violent red manzanitas thrusting huge and arterial from the spongy earth. We gawk at moss-colored oaks, excuse me, moss-covered oaks, twisted into fetal forms. It's as if the two of us are wandering in the womb of the world. But somehow all this primordial splendor serves only to make me long for those early days of courtship, when even a ride in an elevator could feel like a deliciously feral adventure. We climb on without speaking, and I try to imagine what this journey would have felt like 18 years ago when we first met. I would have paced softly, almost stealthily, behind him on this narrow track, feasting on the movements of his slender hands, his sure but surprisingly delicate feet. The natural beauty of the scene would have served only to magnify his glory. Everything about him would have been perfect. Today, I notice he needs a haircut. He breaks the silence only to ask me the time. A lone butterfly appears, drifts daintily earthward, and is crushed under my true love's athletic shoe. A short while later, I am temporarily blinded by a branch he has let spring back across the path. He soon picks up his pace, engrossed in the uphill challenge, forgetting me entirely as he disappears in the distant foliage. I have to shout for him to wait. As I struggle to catch up, I observe his still handsome profile silhouetted in the slanting afternoon light. I am disappointed to note that the sun star, captured for an instant between his slightly parted lips, fails to engender even a prickle of response in the dark secret places of my being. As I approach my partner in life on this windswept hillside, my primary emotion is annoyance, for now that I'm finally able to stand beside him, he is already turning to continue on. Eventually, we do pause on a promontory to consider the view. Look, he says, pointing, but for the life of me, I can't figure out what he wants me to see. So much for the days when I could practically read his mind. When he moves to give me a lukewarm kiss, we falter and bump noses. I get the feeling the party's over. The orchestra has packed up and headed home. Back in the car, we settle into our seats without touching, unable to maintain a conversation that engages either of us. It's so much easier to slip into what could be called a companionable silence and let the stereo fill in the gaps. I remember when we used to travel the same stretch of highway in his battered VW, my hand resting on his neck or knee, the music buzzing from the tinny radio speakers, creating a perfect soundtrack to our romance. The songs that accompany this evening's summer sunset speak of love, but remind me of all the aerobics classes I've been missing. This is music I do sit-ups and leg lifts to. Similarly, my husband heads to the gym with a Walkman tucked in his duffel bag. I suspect we have both come to value a torch song primarily for its power to stir a desire for firmer stomachs and thighs. The romantic restaurant has misplaced our reservation. When we arrive, the only available seating is at the long counter overlooking their famous grill. As we study our menus, I feel somewhat indifferent to what's offered, For without the tender pangs of sexual appetite, I know the food, however excellent, will never enter the realm of culinary foreplay. I do not worry about my intake of garlic or the amount of daintiness required to eat my selection. Maybe the champagne we order will liven my palate and stir my libido. As we slip, sip, 
from narrow flutes. I'm startled to feel my husband's arm around the back of my chair. I'm drawn into the warm circle of his regard. At the same time, I compare this sensation of quiet pleasure to my long-ago cravings for his touch. We don't hold our faces close as we once did, reading the secret signs of lips and eyes, but remain focused on the antics of the four men working behind the counter. Do those men like the feel of our eyes on their backs? Does our curiosity spur them on to perform more gracefully, just as I might under the watchful gaze of a new lover? Three chefs command the grill area, whisking sauces and oils over sudden eruptions of flame. As they juggle hot pans and sharp blades in their cramped work area, they are by necessity rather like newly smitten lovers in their awareness of each other's movements. I think of how seldom my husband works with me in the kitchen now, in spite of his inventiveness with food and my yearnings for assistance. We no longer view such cooperative endeavors as potential romantic opportunities. Reaching for the vegetable peeler at the same moment, we are irritated rather than thrilled by the touch of the other's hand. We collide so often, so obviously in each other's way, we both feel clumsy, out of step. The fourth cook, tall, Blonde, a bit gawky, works in isolation off to the left. He is in charge of salads and desserts, creating abstract designs with crudités and sweet sauces on chilled plates. I have rarely even glanced in his direction, but as the check arrives, he turns and looks directly into my eyes. His angular face breaks open into a radiant smile, while his arms, loaded with salad plates, open in a gesture of embrace. I'm Instantly flooded with heat, helpless in the glare of this unsolicited, flat, unsolicited flattery, I wonder what it would be like just for a moment to slide my arms around that stranger's neck and hear his whisper in my ear. Stop there. It goes on. It goes on. It goes on. Um, as I started and prefaced this, by the way, thank you for reading that, which oh. is quite uh, an intimate look in your interior monologue. Um, when you wrote it, and I assume you shared it with your husband, yes. it must have caused, because this is the, by the way, this is the, the, the piece out of the, your book that I shared with my wife. Interesting. Because uh, it's the, the transition, you know, and, and we started talking about it because we've been married for almost 50 years now. And there are these ebbs and flows yes. over a relationship where, again, you know, working in the kitchen used to be so much fun, and then it became, well, kind of an annoyance, and then it's kind of become more fun again, yes. and then it's experimental, yes. you know, as you try, you know, different ways of preparing things and sharing them. So you were obviously in the, my gosh, this is get out of my way phase. Yes. 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 And and I'm happy to say that we, we haven't stayed stuck in that phase. Yes. You know, that's, you know, 30, you know, we're, you know, another 20 years on, you know, or, or more. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. But you probably got some response at the time that this was came out. Well. I would hope so. You know, I have to say that my husband is a really smart guy. But maybe if I say tell you that he's an engineer, it might explain uh, something. Mm -hmm. And and he, I mean, one of the things when I talk about with you know with my writing about my family, um, I think back then I was feeling that I that perhaps 
I wasn't he wasn't paying much attention and so that I could that I that there were frustrations that I had that I wrote about and this piece happened to have won this is probably the this is the one essay that I've that's been most successful for me. Really, it 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 won the 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 first prize when the Dickens when Copperfields used to yeah. publish the Dickens, yeah. and then it got picked up by the Bohemian and and reprinted. So it's like I I really thought twice about putting it in this book because I feel like in some ways it isn't. I mean the. The thing about it, it's not in the end section. It's in the it's you know, well. It was it, in the middle. It's in the middle, yeah. and and so I'm hoping that that you know readers, even if you don't buy the book or if you don't read the book, that you won't assume that we we stayed you know we stopped you know there, but um, but yeah, it was um it was a sense that he did read it, but he didn't really see, imagine it going out into into the world. And and so it was it was um it was difficult and I realized too that many maybe I'm making generalizations but 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 I hadn't realized how romantic in some ways that he is for the idea of being in love I mean I had this idea of of being of loving him as being this good thing and I still do and but but the idea of being in love is really important to him and. He said, "Well, but I'm in love with you, and you know, so that it, it, and and I don't, and here I feel like again I'm revealing something perhaps that I shouldn't about him, but it was really, it was, it was, it was an interesting way of, uh, well, we, it, it created a lot of discussion, and it comes up over the years. It's right, not, right. it's not been an easy thing. Well, it comes up over the years whether you've written an essay like this or not. Yes, yeah. true, but when you've, you know, shared it with, you know, yeah. couple." hundred of your closest well, friends, it, it, you know, it's, yeah. I know you, you you see it, and it's interesting that you do, as the reaction that it has on your husband, but it puts you in a very vulnerable spot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which, as a writer, I guess that's the personal part of the personal essay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and again, as I've gotten older, I've, I've seen, I, I didn't, I see more clearly you know how we expose ourselves, mm. and it isn't necessarily just our slips showing. It can be, you know, <laughs> a lot more embarrassing. Yes, 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 it can. Yeah. The um, it's about that time. Um, yeah, we're just it's about long. there. You, ha- this has been wonderful, by the way, and I can't recommend more highly than people run out because you're going to have a, a presentation at Copperfields down in. In Petaluma. In Petaluma in about two weeks. Yeah, on November 23rd. So tell us about that and where they can get your book at that time and meet you and probably get a, a signature well, inside. Well, of course. Yes. Of course, with my special signing pen. Yes. <laughs> my lucky pen. Good. Um, yeah, the book is actually, you can you can get it on Amazon. It's not available in Kindle yet, but you can order it from Amazon. It will be in Copperfields tomorrow. Starting tomorrow, um, in the Petaluma store. Now it'll spread its way out into the other um, stores. I'm hoping eventually, and um, yeah, on at two o'clock on the 23rd on Sunday the 23rd, there's going to be a little party, and um, that's yeah, that's and you can go to my website susanbono.com and uh, if you really want, one person has asked me to send them a an autographed copy. Uh-huh. So you know, I, I'm I'm flexible. Right, right. Once again, Susan Bono, thank you so much. Thank you.
You have been listening to word-by-word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. We have had a conversation today with the celebrated writer, teacher, editor, and publisher Susan Bono as she shared some of her personal narratives from her new book, What Have We Here? Essays about keeping house and finding home. As we mentioned, Susan invites you to join her for her book party on Sunday, November 23rd at 2 p.m. in the downtown Petaluma Copperfields bookstore. Our studio engineer for today's show is Jesse Fankushin. Our theme music is by Bill Conti. I'm your host, Gil Manser. I have to say ho, 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 as I invite you to Word by Word's annual holiday tradition. For our December show, Copperfields Bookstore's knowledgeable and articulate book buyers, Michelle Bella and Cheryl Cotelera, will once again share their suggestions for gift books, including cookbooks, coffee table books, kids' books, gadget books, novels, and short story collections. So mark your calendar and tune in at 4 p.m. on Sunday, December 14th. Until then, the staff and volunteers at KRCB wish you a joyous Thanksgiving.